in an experiment. Yeah, we didn't know yet. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, examining the geology of exoplanets. Plus, a new fossil finding reveals a duck-like dual-terrain dino. This is the Nature Podcast for December the 7th, 2017. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. A Nature paper is coming out this week that describes a new dinosaur called Hauscaraptor esculier, which has some features that might be considered a little odd. This fossil had a rather interesting life, or perhaps that should be a rather interesting life after death. Initially, these bones were poached from Mongolia and kept in private collections before being transferred to the Royal Belgian Institute of Natural Sciences in 2015. This is where the find is currently being studied before it's finally returned to Mongolia in the future. The fossil is believed to be over 71 million years old, which makes it from the late Cretaceous period. However, because it wasn't excavated properly, or officially, the exact location of where this dinosaur was found is unknown. We suspect that it lived in an environment that, that is probably a semi-arid environment with other kind of dinosaurs. For example, the famous Velociraptor is from the same locality. This is Andrea Cao from the University of Bologna in Italy, who's led the new research on this dino. Hauschgarepter esculier is a member of a group called the Maniraptora. Among the Maniraptora are lots of subgroups of bird-like dinosaurs, including the Velociraptor, as well as birds themselves. According to Andrea, Maniraptoran dinosaurs look a bit different to the classic dino that you may have seen in a certain Hollywood movie. We know that they were uh, completely feathered, and so they were very bird-like in their physical appearance. Alscaraptor is uh, uh, unexpected because uh, it combines features from different groups of many raptorans, and this is one of the reasons we decided to use a novel analysis for interpreting this fossil. This novel analysis required some incredibly powerful x-rays, because carefully piecing together a skeleton from its individual bones wasn't an option and this was due to the minor inconvenience of the fossil being mostly encased in a block of orangey-red sandstone. While making most of the fossil inaccessible, this sedimentary slab did afford the team an unspoilt view of the past. This is typical of the fossils from this locality. They are exquisitely preserved because probably they died during sandstorms that preserved perfectly the bodies. And most of the skeleton is, uh, is still, uh, still preserved in the natural and in the original position of the bones. And we suspect that a few bones were eventually damaged during the excavation of the fossil. But other bones not visible are still inside the, the sandstone block. They were uh, digitally extracted using the, the synchrotron scanning. The team used a synchrotron in the French city of Grenoble to bombard the sample with X-rays billions of times brighter than those used in hospitals. These rays pierced the sandstone and allowed the team to create a 3D reconstruction of the dinosaur skeleton. To me, the 2D version in the paper looks something like an ostrich with an extended tail. It's got two long legs and a rather elongated neck that's held vertically. What I didn't take into account was the scale bar and rather than resembling an ostrich, Hauschgaraptor is actually about the size of a big duck. 
Turns out, though, that I was kind of on the right track thinking about birds, because Hauschka had a number of avian-like features, as Andrea explains. The head is similar to a bird. It's quite that like And even the neck is similar to a swan. But no other kind of dinosaurs show this particular neck. Another unexpected feature are the strange proportions in the front limbs. And when we search it among living animals and fossil animals, those with the most similar proportions, we found that in aquatic animals we see similar proportions. Because of these features, the researchers hypothesized that Hauschkaraptor is a new kind of semi-aquatic dinosaur. They suggest it would have walked about on land on its back limbs, but used its flipper-like forelimbs to move about on water. Its elongated, swan-like neck could have helped it forage for food or catch fish. Andrea told me that dinosaurs weren't generally very successful at adapting to marine environments, and there are very few examples of semi-aquatic species. This makes this new finding rather special. We have other dinosaurs that were decided to be semi-aquatic, but the reconstruction of these dinosaurs I usually consider more crocodile-like swimming style. This is the first time we have a dinosaur that may have used the front limbs during the swimming. While this dual-terrain dino is an interesting find, more fossils need to be unearthed to give us a better idea of how Hauschkaraptor moved, whether it swam like any modern birds, and where it fits on the evolutionary tree. In the meantime, the mere fact that this fossil has been found is quite exciting enough in itself for Andrea. I was completely shocked the first time I saw this, this fossil because it's completely unexpected, but at the same time, it's from an area well known in dinosaur paleontology, and we usually assume that the most unexpected dinosaurs will be discovered in areas like Antarctica or uh, South Africa that have not been particularly excavated. The discovery of this completely unexpected dinosaur in Mongolia is unexpected itself because we expected to have found all groups of dinosaurs from Mongolia. That was Andrea Kau there. You can read his paper over at nature.com forward slash nature. If you're curious about what life is like in the synchrotron where the team scanned their dino, head over to youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. Our short film, 24 Hours in a Synchrotron, shows how intense research life can be in a science facility that never sleeps. The news chat is still to come where we'll be learning about a deep space space station and the origins of SARS. First up though, Noah Baker is here and he's armed with the research highlights. Who would win this arm wrestle? The world's greatest women rowers or the first female farmers? Well, a study comparing their arm and leg bones suggests that early agriculturalists would have the upper hand. Even though the prehistoric bones were more like those of semi-elite rowers than runners, the ancient women had much stronger arms. This is probably because the daily grain grind and soil tilling was done by hand, before beasts of burden and cultivation contrivances made farming a right doddle. Leg it over to Science Advances for the full paper. And now, the latest contender for the mightiest muscles, a robot with an origami skeleton. Engineers have flexed their minds and assembled an artificial muscle that outperforms its human counterparts. They folded a metal or plastic structure into a concertina and put it inside a stretchy skin. The skin could be filled with air or water. Sucking out the fluid forces the skeleton to collapse and contract, generating a pulling power several times that of a human muscle of the same weight. 
By changing the origami folding pattern, the team made muscles that could squeeze, bend and twist, and used their dexterous device to lift a 22-kilogram car wheel. The simple design could inspire tiny surgical tools or enormous robotic arms on space stations where neither athletes or farmers would be very appropriate. Get to grips with this weighty research over at PNAS. Just how unique is our planet? Earth glistens with water, is home to continents, and its magnetic field protects its surface from harmful solar winds. These factors and many others mean that Earth can support life. Nothing else orbiting our sun resembles our green-blue planet. And, until a couple of decades ago, that was the end of the story. The idea that there might be other planets out there, some of which might resemble Earth, was sheer speculation. Then, in the 90s, all that changed. Astronomers learnt to spot planets orbiting other stars. Sometimes they'd spot a star's brightness dim as a planet passed in front. Sometimes they'd see a star wobble ever so slightly as it was tugged by a planet's gravitational pull. Today, thousands of these exoplanets have been discovered. Which begs the question, are any of them anything like Earth? But these planets are light years away, meaning we have limited information to go on. When we think about exoplanets, we kind of have to think about very few observables. Mass, radius, something about its orbit, and maybe down the line, something about its atmosphere. And that's it. This is Cayman Unterborn. He's an exoplanet geologist. So with those four parameters, I have to build a planet and kind of understand everything going on. Understanding exoplanets could teach us which ones are more like Earth. And this would provide clues in the ultimate quest to find life on other worlds. Finding candidates for worlds that could support life requires astronomers to first observe whether an exoplanet is in its star's so-called habitable zone, where the distance is just right for the planet to be able to support liquid water. But this habitable zone concept is great for sort of a first cut, right? Is that planet in its habitable zone? Yes, it's likely to have liquid water. But there's a lot more steps after that that say, well, okay, but is it too much water? Well, can it produce continents that are sort of of the right composition to aid in these geochemical cycles? Um, what is, what's its likelihood of having a magnetic field? These are all sort of secondary things that the more that planet has in its favor, the more sort of the geologist in me would be comfortable with say, yeah, go ahead and invest a year's worth of observations and really dig in. If there's one thing that our observations have taught us so far, it's the sheer diversity of planets in our universe. Researchers can't just assume that planets orbiting other stars formed in the same way as in our solar system. That's according to Rick Carlson, who generally works on what our sun's planets are made of. You know, we've opened our eyes now to the fact that there are many possibilities. We've only got four terrestrial planets in our solar system. We've got 400 million of them. <laughs> That's a guess. It's not a, a firm number. But some very large number of, of terrestrial planets, we'll call them, in other solar systems. And they're just going to provide us, uh, you know, just an eye-opening look at the diversity of geological processes that can happen on planets. 
Astronomers are cataloguing more and more exoplanets, each with their own unique conditions. And so, researchers are going back to the drawing board to find out how different conditions could impact an exoplanet's geology. For example, astronomers have observed stars with ratios of magnesium and silicon radically different to those in our own sun. To find out what this could mean for alien rocks, geologists have to synthesise similar minerals and see how they respond to extreme conditions. We, we can kind of make guesses on what that might look like, but it would be really great to put it in an experiment, bring it up to pressures and temperatures that are sort of characteristic of what that planet will uh, have, and see actually what it looks like so we can better formulate our models. If we want to understand whether a planet is habitable or even you know, remotely Earth-like, we really need to model a lot of these geologies the more information astronomers can get hold of, the more geologists like Cayman hope to deduce about an exoplanet. Watching starlight shine through an exoplanet's atmosphere, for example, may tell us what gases that atmosphere contains. And Rick explains that this could, in turn, reveal all sorts of secrets. Information that we would get could tell us about, for example, life, which of course is one of the, one of the big uh, goals in this, but also tell us about volcanism on the planet. It could tell us whether there's liquid water present on the planet. So it will be a, a very big extrapolation to take an atmospheric composition and deduce the uh, geological evolution of the planet, but it's not impossible. Considering just how little raw information we have about exoplanets, Geologists like Cayman and Rick remain optimistic about what we may be able to learn. Cayman, for example, suggests that we may one day spot a planet with continents by seeing starlight gleam off the surface in wavering patterns. It's been little over 20 years since the first exoplanet was discovered. In that time, astronomers have added more and more to the list. And now, Geologists are helping unearth as many secrets as they can about these distant worlds. It's the geophysicists and geochemists who are going to provide sort of the broadest context of what that planet is actually going on. When the paper comes out in Nature that we have found a habitable exoplanet and these are the biosignatures, it hopefully will have been vetted by quite a few geophysicists before that paper ever comes out. I think there's been few times in human history where just our view of, of our place in nature has changed so dramatically, and it's just a great time to be in the field. So, so, so I, it's just thrilling to me. I, I'm obviously biased, but I, I do find it to be a, a thrilling time to be in the field. That was Rick Carlson of the Carnegie Institution for Science in D.C. and Cayman Unterborn, who's at Arizona State University. To find out more about exoplanet geology, make sure to read the feature in this week's Nature. Find it at nature.com forward slash news. Now it's time for this week's news chat. And I'm joined in the studio by Lizzie Gibney, senior reporter here at Nature. Hi, Lizzie. Hello. We've just had Adam talking about space there. And obviously, we love stories about space. So it's time for another one. Uh, Lizzie, what's going on? Well, so this is something called the Deep Space Gateway. Um, it's currently just a plan. The World Space Agency, so we're talking NASA, ESA, JAXA, they will have this idea for what they want in sometime in the 2020s as a space station to replace the International Space Station, which is currently orbiting around Earth. 
But this time, it would be in the vicinity of the moon. So it would probably be orbiting in a very elongated, funny orbit around the moon. And it would be somewhere you could actually send humans to. And this is an exciting idea. It's not one that has yet been funded. There's a lot of momentum building behind it. And what's happening this week is that scientists are getting together to try and come up with ideas for the kind of science that you would do on that kind of spaceship. So this is very much then on paper at the moment. It is, exactly. It's the very early stages. But if we want to have a space station that not only fulfills all the objectives that the space agencies want, which are things like being a place for space diplomacy and um, really the most important one is to promote human exploration in space. So to figure out um, how to live in deep space, how to survive for a long time um, as a kind of stepping stone for eventually going further, perhaps to Mars. But if we also want it to do some really good science, which you do, given that um, it's going to cost a huge amount of money and it's a really unique place to have a laboratory, uh, then you want to get in at the early stages as well to try and figure out even how best to design this space station so it fits your science goals as well as your exploration ones. So when you say space diplomacy then, do you mean that this is you know, agencies from all over the world coming together. Exactly. If you think back to the space race, um, that was really militaristic and that was about a rivalry between um, the USSR and the US. Today, what they're trying to do is, um, is follow on from the International Space Station, which was really healing those Cold War wounds, and now going even further and saying, can we get everybody on the planet, every space agency, to come up with a single plan and to, to explore space together. Um, there is uh, one conspicuous absence from that list, which was China. Um, I don't know if China are at some point going to want to get involved, uh, but because they certainly have big ambitions in space as well. So speaking of ambitions there, what can this new space station do that the ISS can't? Well, the main thing is about its location. So it will be far away from Earth and Earth has this protective magnetosphere and also an ionosphere of charged particles. And that means that the environment much closer to the moon will be very representative of deep space. So it's it's going to be the best kind of way to mimic the environment that humans will have to face if they then end up going on very long, uh, long duration journeys journeys out to places like Mars. It's also going to be really close to the moon. A great vantage point um, because you could potentially, say, operate rovers from this space station and you could do that even when uh, your your rovers are on the dark side of the moon, which is where it's particularly interesting because that's where the ice is on the moon. And also you could maybe uh, collect samples and then just bring them back to the space station laboratory and you wouldn't need to then take them all the way back to Earth. And that means you could get greater diversity of samples, you could get much more mass. It's got this really unique location. Well, I mean, all seems pretty well then in our in our future space utopia. But realistically, what are people hoping it's going to do? Or are they still, you know, assuming it's going to do everything? Um, well, they're going to have to whittle this down, I guess, quite a lot. Probably what will happen is it will be a, a bit like the ISS, the International Space Station, in that there will be a host of proposals and they will pick from the best ones. What we hope really is that considerations about the kind of science that they do on this deep space gateway will help shape the actual structure itself. So, for instance, how many observatories, telescopes could you stick on the outside of it? What kind of orbit can it have? Can it move between orbits? That's the kind of thing that you might want to do if you want to make different kinds of observations. So I think it's going to be very hard in the near future to actually come up with a concrete list of things that you'd want to use it to study, given that what we're talking about is the 2020s, perhaps going into the late 2020s. But you want to make sure that science is in there from the start. All right, and well, changing tack, we've got a story about SARS as well. And what can you tell us about that? 
Well, so if you cast your mind back to 2002, we had the, the SARS outbreak, and it's kind of a respiratory disease. It infected thousands of people, killed almost 800, and it's been a bit of a mystery as to where it actually came from originally. So scientists at the time sequenced the genetic strain of the disease to try and figure out exactly where it may have originated. And they found um, a few leads, one of them being um, that they found a similar strain in some civets in China. They're kind of cat-like mammals. And also in these um, bats called horseshoe bats. But there was a little bit of a puzzle because uh, one of the particular proteins that was found in the human strain that proved so deadly wasn't actually in these varieties that they found. So scientists in China have been trying to track down with some very clever detective work exactly where this strain may have come from. So yes, it's an interesting one. I think the the first sort of believed culprit was these these civets in, in food markets, right? And so uh, SARS is a zoonotic disease that goes from animals to people. And so they've been following it back round to a location where the, where the bats live, presumably. So they track bats to many different caves, locations across the country. Um, and, it, and there was one cave in particular where they found lots of strains that had similarities to this human version of SARS. And they spent five years analysing the guano and sequencing all these different strains. And what they found was not exactly the same strain as, as was found in humans, but several different strains that when you put them together did give you the human strain. So all the building blocks that look very likely to have come together at some point to transmit into civets and then humans. Bats are super interesting then for a lot of sort of zoonotic viral diseases, things like uh, Nipah and maybe Ebola as well. Uh, And they act as these kind of reservoirs where the virus lives when it's not in a human host. I mean, in this case, we've talked about sort of individual parts of SARS being in individual bats. Is there concern that this could recombine again in future? Well, that's the thing. Genetic mixing among these different viral strains happens very fast. And in this case, the cave where we think SARS emerged is just a kilometre from where people live in a village. So it does seem that this kind of spillover could in future happen again. Yeah, and I think that spillover is an important word there. I I think I read somewhere that like 60% of human viral diseases are zoonotic in their origins. And given that SARS kind of came out of nowhere in 2002, essentially, know more about these things and where spillovers may occur seems super important. It is very important. That's why they're doing this kind of work. The other message that the researchers actually give is that we should really, um, you know, try and leave wildlife in their habitats. Uh, The problem here, they think, arose from putting wild animals into the markets. So that's something else that perhaps we should take away from it. And that's something then that's maybe slightly puzzling. I mean, the actual population of these bats is a very, very long way away from where the outbreak of SARS occurred. That's right. So it was Guangdong region where the outbreak first occurred. um, But the bats are in Yunnan, which is about a thousand kilometres away. And the researchers haven't found any intermediary cases. So that part remains a little bit of a puzzle. Thanks, Lizzie. For more on those two stories, head over to nature.com forward slash news. That's it for this week. Don't forget to follow the show on Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast. And you can email any feedback to us on podcast at nature.com. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>